0: today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: In December 1991, Brian Roof was 20 years old, and he lived in Salt Lake City, Utah. Brian had been married for about two years, and he had a 13-month-old daughter, Brittany. His wife, Jennifer, was pregnant with their second child. Jennifer and Brian met at church. Brian was a talented wrestler. He competed in high school and went to the state championship. After high school, he attended Rick's College, a church of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints-owned University in Rettsburg, Idaho. He was a member of the wrestling team. He only went there for a year, then he worked as an EMT for a year. In December 1991, he was attending Salt Lake Community College to become a nurse. In addition to that, he was working as a security guard at the Kencock Copper Mine just outside of Salt Lake City. We'll be back
0: after a quick break.
1: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Now, back to our episode.
1: On December 10th, 1991, Brian went to work his shift. His shift was from 4pm to midnight. He worked alone in a remote shack. It was his job to do rounds, but there was a lot of downtime which gave him time to do his schoolwork. A few hours after Brian's shift started, his supervisor went to check on him. Brian was nowhere to be found. Nothing seemed to be disturbed. Brian's happy lunch was in the shack. It had recently snowed, but there were no footprints in the snow. His car was parked in a lot close to the shack and there were no footprints around it either. It was as if 22-year-old Brian Roof had vanished into thin air. But this wasn't the first time he had disappeared. About a month earlier, Brian didn't come home after his shift. His wife, Jennifer, found a letter he had left on his pillow. He wrote that he was feeling overwhelmed by life. He was a young man who was married with a child, another one on the way, and he was attending school and working full-time. He was stressed out and he needed some time away to think things over. Jennifer called his boss at the mine. He said that morning Brian had suddenly quit and collected his last paycheck. He didn't know where Brian was. Jennifer didn't hear from her husband for six days. Then their daughter, Brittany, became sick with viral pneumonia. Jennifer had to take her to the emergency room. Word reached Brian, and he came home. He apologized for his actions, and Jennifer loved moved back home. But Brian was noticeably different after he got back. Jennifer told Forensic Files that he was cold, bitter, and angry. Brian was also able to get his job back. When the supervisor couldn't find Brian, he called the police. As the police were searching the shack, the phone in the shack rang. An officer answered the phone. The caller said she was Jennifer, Brian's wife. She was surprised that Brian didn't answer the phone. The officer identified himself and said they were looking for Brian. The caller said that she had been talking to Brian hours earlier but he had to go because another employee was approaching the shack. Brian did not identify the other employee. The officer then hung up the phone. Minutes later, the phone rang again and the same officer answered. The caller said that she was Jennifer Roof, Brian's wife. But the officer immediately recognized that the caller was not the woman he had talked to minutes earlier. The mining company had caller ID. It turned out that the first call was for Brian's wife and the second was from his friend, 20-year-old Christy Bradley. Christy was married to Dale Bradley who worked as a security guard at the mine. The police immediately became suspicious. Why would Christy call and pose as Brian's wife? The police questioned Christy and Dale. Christy explained that she met Brian when she would bring Dale his lunch. She and Brian started talking, and they became good friends. She had heard he was missing, and she was worried. So she called, posing as Jennifer, to hopefully get some information about his disappearance. She thought they wouldn't have given her any information if she called and said she was his friend. The police asked Christy and Dale what they were doing at the time of Brian's disappearance. Christy said she had been home all evening. Dale said he wasn't working that night. Instead, he was at the library at the University of Utah. But then as he was leaving, his car became stuck on some ice. He called his friend at a nearby bar and asked him to pick him up. Days went by and no trace of Brian Roof was found. Five days after Brian seemingly vanished into thin air, Jennifer found some things that disturbed her. There's a credit card bill, and a phone bill. On the credit card bill, she saw charges for when Brian was gone for the six days. There were charges for a motel near Salt Lake City, another motel in Reno, Nevada, and a third in San Francisco, California. On the phone bill, she found a San Francisco phone number that she didn't recognize. She called the number, and a man answered. She asked him if he knew anyone who lived in Salt Lake City. He said that he did, his niece, Christy Bradley. She had been by to visit a few weeks earlier. Jennifer then asked if he knew Brian. The man said he did. He was with Christy and she introduced him as her new husband. Jennifer was devastated when she realized that her husband had been having an affair. Jennifer told the police what she had found out. The police questioned Christy. She said that her husband, Dale, was very controlling, but she liked Brian, and they started having an affair. The police questioned Dale. He said he had no idea that his wife had been unfaithful to him. Since Dale had a motive, the police searched his car, a 1974 red Camaro, for bloodstains and gunshot residue. But they found nothing of interest. Both Bradleys agreed to take a polygraph exam. They both passed, so they were dropped as suspects. The police's next lead involved a theft ring at the mine perpetrated by some security guards. Brian was one of the people who had reported the thefts. The last person to see Brian was his supervisor, Todd Fallows, who was involved in the theft ring. The police developed a theory that Brian happened upon Fallows while he was stealing some metal. So, Fallows killed him and hid his body. The police questioned Fallows and he claimed he had nothing to do with Brian's disappearance. But he had a couple theories about what could have happened to him after he was murdered. For example, his body could have been put in a rock rider or hidden under some boulders in the mine. Both would explain why his body wasn't found. Fallows was questioned about the theft ring and he said he had nothing to do with it. After Brian went missing, Fallows was fired and arrested for his part in the ring. The police strongly suspected that Fallows was responsible for Brian's disappearance because he had motive, making sure that Brian didn't expose his involvement in the ring and he had lied to the police, saying he hadn't stolen anything. But the police found no evidence to connect Fallows or anyone else in the ring to Brian's disappearance. Six months passed and Jennifer gave birth to another daughter, Jessica, but no trace of Brian was found. Jennifer remained hopeful that Brian was alive and that he would come back to her and their children. After all, he had left before and came back. But last time, he didn't cut off contact with everybody in his family. He returned when he learned that his daughter was sick in the hospital. But when Jennifer gave birth, there was still no word from him. Life after Brian's disappearance was difficult for Jennifer. She lived with her parents and her two small children in a mobile home. She was forced to file for bankruptcy after she couldn't pay $10,000 in credit card debt. 18 months went by, then on July 10, 1993, four campers were in the desert about 45 miles from where Brian went missing. They found some skeletal remains. The remains were buried in a shallow grave that was covered with a piece of sheet metal. The remains were clothed in a blue security guard's uniform. On the body was a wallet with Brian Roof's identification in it. The only thing that was missing was his boots. The dental records confirmed it was 22-year-old Brian Roof. He had been shot in the back five times with a 22 caliber gun. Five spent shell casings were found near the body. It's believed that Brian was kidnapped at the shack and then the killer drove him out to the desert. He then executed him by shooting him in the back. The next day, the police brought out a K-9 unit. About 200 feet from where the remains were found, the police found one of Brian's boots. It had a bullet hole in it. The second boot was never found. Unfortunately, since weather conditions had ravaged the area, there were not many clues. Thirteen years went by. During that time, the police believed that Brian was killed because he happened upon other security guards stealing from the mine but they never found any evidence that proved their theory. Then, in 2005, there was a tragic turn in the case. In April 2005, a cold case investigator in Salt Lake County received a call from a deputy in the Sheriff's Department in Carbon County. Carbon County neighbors Salt Lake County. The deputy said they were investigating murder and their prime suspect had been a suspect and Brian Roof's murder. That was Dale Bradley. In the years since Brian's murder, Dale and Christie had divorced. In May 1997, Dale married Crystal Carpenter. Crystal took his last name. In spring 2005, they lived in a trailer in Wellington, Utah. On April 30th, 2005, the police were called to Dale and Crystal's home. 27-year-old Crystal had been stabbed to death near an outbuilding close to their trailer. A neighbor had found the body and called 911. The police questioned 36-year-old Dale. He said he had been asleep when his wife was murdered. He thought that she went out to feed some chickens they were raising in the outbuilding and she was attacked. The police searched the trailer and they found some methamphetamine. Dale was arrested for possession of methamphetamine. Dale denied killing his wife and said that the drugs had been planted. Dale was asked if he would take a polygraph exam and he said he would. Dale failed the polygraph examination. But something he said in the pre-examination caught the detective's attention. Dale was asked if he had ever taken a polygraph exam before. He said in 1991 he had taken one regarding the disappearance of a security guard at a mine. The detective decided to call the cold case investigator in Salt Lake County. The two investigators know similarities between the murders of Brian and Crystal. Brian was killed when he had an affair with Dale's first wife, Christy. Crystal was killed after she informed Dale that she had been having an affair. She was planning on leaving him, but the day before that, she was killed. After hearing Dale Bradley was a prime suspect in another murder, the cold case investigator called Christy Bradley. Christy was surprised to hear from the cold case investigator. She thought that Brian's murder had been solved. She thought this because her ex-husband, Dale, had told her that. But it was clear that he had lied and the cold case investigator thought this was something odd to lie about. The cold case investigator asked Christy if she had any new information about Brian's murder. Possibly something that she didn't tell the police nearly a decade and a half earlier. Chrissy said that she did. The day after Brian went missing, Dale cleaned his car, including his trunk. She thought that this was odd because he had never cleaned his trunk in all the years she had known him. The cold case investigator decided to re-examine the evidence. When he looked at Brian's boot, he noticed something unusual. On the bottom of the boot was a red mark. It turned out to be a paint scuff. The cold case investigator immediately recognized the color. Dale's Camaro had the same paint color. Upon further examination, it was determined that a law of force was needed to get the paint onto the bottom of the boot. The investigators thought that if Brian was locked in the trunk of a car, he may have tried to kick the trunk open and this could have left the mark on the boot. The police then confirmed that in the factory, the interior trunks of 1974 Camaros were were painted the same color as their exteriors. The police then started what seemed like the impossible task of tracking down Dale's car. But two years after Brian's murder, the car was sold for scrap metal. So the police thought it was a dead end. Undeterred, they continued to look through the case file. To their surprise, one of the original investigators took paint scrapings from the car. It's unknown why they did this, but the cold case investigators were incredibly thankful they did. Using a special microscope, the paint scrapings from the car and the scuff from the boot were compared. They believed that they were the same. Then they got a sample of paint from a red 1974 Camaro. They compared all three in a scanning electron microscope. They determined it was the same type of paint. Besides collecting paint samples, the original investigators also collected a sample of dirt that was on Dale's car. The dirt on the car didn't come from the area where Dale supposedly got his vehicle stuck. But the soil did match the soil in the area where the murder was committed. The investigators reviewed Dale's statements to the police. They noticed they he changed his story about that night several times. He originally said that his friend helped him get his car moving after he became stuck in some ice. But he later said he got the car unstuck by himself and he picked his friend up at the bar. The police also learned that the friend he called for help didn't have a car or a driver's license. So why would he call that friend to pick him up? The police had phone records from the bar where his friend was that night. One call came into the bar that night and it was from a pay phone. said that he called from the University of Utah. But the call came from a pay phone near the mine which is nowhere near the university. In September 2005, Dale Bradley was charged with Brian Roof's murder. The police's theory is that Dale either knew or strongly suspected that Brian and his wife were having an affair. He knew that Brian would be working alone in the shack. He went to the shack and then forced him to get into the trunk of his car. As Dale drove, Brian kicked the trunk door, which led to him getting the paint scuff on the bottom of his boot. Once they got to the area where Dale planned to kill Brian, he made Brian take off his boots so he couldn't run away quickly. He then forced them to walk to the shallow grave that he dug earlier that day. The police also thought that Dale may have made Brian dig his own grave. Dale then shot a 22-year-old Brian roof in the back five times. In January 2007, Dale agreed to a plea deal. He entered an Alford plea to second-degree manslaughter and kidnapping. An Alford plea is when someone doesn't admit their guilt, but acknowledges that there is enough evidence to convict them if they went to trial. Dale Bradley was sentenced to 40 years in prison. At the time of this recording, 54-year-old Dale Bradley is serving a sentence at the Central Utah Correctional Facility in Gunnison, Utah. If he serves his entire sentence, he will be released in 2046 when he will be 78 years old. No one has ever been charged in connection with the murder of his second wife, 27-year-old Crystal Bradley. Dale remains the prime suspect.
0: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.